This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio brings you prescribed listening from our trusted contributors at the Ontario Pharmacists Association. Okay, we are switching gears and we're going to stop, start by talking about your pets. And if you have a pet, you may be tempted to give it human medications in order to save a trip to the vet. Some of those medications can be similar to the ones that you take for your own health conditions, but there are important differences. Many prescription and over-the-counter medications taken by humans are harmful for your four-legged family members, just like some meds prescribed by your pet's vet aren't suitable for human consumption. So, what do you do with that? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. I'm here with Dean Miller, our trusted contributor from the Ontario Pharmacists Association, and he is here to answer your questions all about what to give your pet, what not to give your pet, when to give it to them, and of course, to answer any of your questions regarding anything pharmaceutical. Hi, Dean. How are you? Hi, Libby. I'm great. How are you? I'm fine. So um, how often does this crop up? Well, you know, a lot more now than it used to. There was a time where, unless you lived in a rural area and you operated a rural pharmacy, um, you really didn't see much for animals. But, you know, now more than ever, uh, you know, pharmacists are seeing um, a lot of prescriptions that people bring in for their pet. And, you know, we see files created on some of our computer systems that say, you know, Fluffy's prescription and, and that sort of thing. So a lot more people are, are actually turning to their pharmacist uh, uh, to supply that medication uh, for, for, for pets, especially, I mean, of course, dogs and cats, which are the most common. But uh, we sit, we've seen all kinds of different uh, prescriptions for, uh, for, for certain animals. Okay. So, so do you carry vet uh, per, uh, animal drugs? Yeah, it's, a, it's an important distinction because there's there's a lot of crossover. So there's a lot of things that are the same, but there's a lot of things that are different too. So there's, you know, typically vets carry a wide range of things that, and they get it from their own supply. It has nothing to do with pharmacy, but there's a lot of, of uh, prescription items that I think a lot more people are asking questions and, and, and they should. It's a good thing to do that, you know, patients just like they do for themselves, um, should ask questions about what's what are you going to give my pet because in a lot of cases it is the same and yeah there's there could be considerable you know savings and costs and that sort of thing by going to the pharmacist because there is a lot of crossover between so you're saying the vets charge more for drugs than pharmacies um (laughs) you know it's a a bit of a slippery slope i don't know if i want to go there uh in too depth but in most cases that we've seen i think it's a different pricing model uh vet prescriptions versus uh human prescriptions so in in a lot of cases it, it it is uh cheaper in a pharmacy than it is at the vet's office okay well uh i had no 
idea. Uh-uh. Well, I have a personal experience around yeah. that where there was about a $60 difference in a, you know, a week's supply of medication just a couple couple weeks ago, actually. So, uh-huh. Was yeah. that was that for your own pet or for, for a pet? For my own pet, yeah. 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 So uh, it can be. I, I, you know, I've never done a price comparison on them all, but uh, uh, the ones I've seen, uh, typically people comment, patients comment, they, they'll say, oh, that's much cheaper than the last time I got it from the vet. So. And um, what are... Uh, what are the kinds of drugs that are the same, and what are the kinds of drugs that are definitely not the same? Well, surprisingly, there is a lot that they're the, that are the same. I mean, you typically, you know, you see your pet getting, you know, nervous conditions, and there's pets that have diabetes, and there's pets that have arthritis and are in pain and things. And a lot of cases like that, the medications are the same. Um, However, of course, when you get into some of the more complex conditions, uh, you know, really, it's not your pharmacist that you should be reaching out to. It, it, it's, it's your vet. But there is some commonalities there. It's great to ask questions. I think a simple question that a lot of people can ask is, is this a medication that I could get from my pharmacy uh, because I, you know, I have a pharmacy in town? And could I get the prescription there? And the, the vet, just like a doctor, just like, you know, a nurse practitioner can write a prescription and, and you can get it, get it filled at your pharmacy. See, I would have thought that um, the advantage would be that it's very expensive to go to the vet. And mm-hmm. if you kind of know what your pet has, that uh, just going to the pharmacy and getting something, say, over-the-counter... Uh, is that that's where uh, cost savings would be. Do you see that happening? Well, definitely, yes. But that's probably where people have to be the most cautious because there are some very, very common medications that um, we use, you know, for a headache, for pain, um, um, you know, for, you know, motion sickness, that sort of thing, where, you know, you don't necessarily want to give it to your, your pet. And some of the most commonly used uh, uh, anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen, you know, stuff like Advil or Tylenol, uh, acetaminophen, you know, there's some definite no-nos in there. I mean, you don't want to be giving acetaminophen to your cat. It's a, it's a kind of a deadly combination, um, you know, just as some of the over-the-counter uh, anti-inflammatories, you don't want to give them to your dog. That, that's not to say they don't use those type of medications. They do, but it's better to get those uh, on a prescription from your vet. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's uh, important to know. I've heard about people giving cannabis to their pets. Now, I have heard that as well. And, and, and one of the most commonly, um, uh, commonly uh, asked questions in, in the pharmacy for people that have pets is, you know, my pet is getting older. You know, uh, you know uh, my vet has put them on an anti-inflammatory, but they're still in pain, just like, you know, any of us. And I do know that there has been some clinical trials where, you know, the the use of cannabis on pets has been experimented with. I don't know enough about it to actually really make uh, an intelligent uh, uh, comment about it other than the fact that, uh, you know, it's the same principle. You know, the, the pain threshold is supposedly lowered by the use of cannabis with other types of medication. So... In, interesting. In, in the absence of legalization, I don't know how you get medical marijuana for your pet. Uh, yeah. Who has to, can, can vets write that script or do you have to find a doctor who will do it? I don't believe, I don't know for <laughs> sure, but I don't think vets can write uh, prescriptions for medicinal cannabis. I mean, at least I, I, I'm not 100% there on that one, but I don't think they can. 
Um, I I have a question that's uh, not related. Uh, I was just talking to one of my colleagues, and uh, you know she's middle aged, and and uh, her uh, sugar numbers have gone up. Her A one C has gone up, and she has a healthy diet. She exercises. Why would that be, and what could she do about it beyond you know diet, exercise, all of that? Um, so it's just sort of a new phenomenon. She said. So the the she said her her doctors have told her that it's really going okay. up. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, diabetes kind of comes in in two ways. I mean, there's type mm-hmm. one diabetes, there's type two diabetes. Type two diabetes is sort of for those people that have are carrying too much weight and that sort of thing, and it usually comes in o- over time. Whereas diabetes uh, type one can come on at any time in your life, but but uh, typically it's a it's a genetic thing uh, uh, where you've you know you uh, you have it and you have it for the rest of your life. Um, it it, the it most, would see seem to be like a type two thing. I even was going to say yeah, it's probably yeah. type two. It it could be sort of a life a lifestyle change that sort of thing. Things have happened in her system where she just doesn't. Um, uh, utilize her own insulin in her system as mu- as well as she used to. Um, there is sort of medications. It doesn't mean everybody has to go on insulin, which of course is an injection. Um, but you know there are medications that actually make someone with type two diabetes actually respond a little bit better to uh, uh, to systems within the body to actually lower blood sugar. So so it, I'm thinking that's probably something that you know a lifestyle change or a weight change or, or something that might have precipitated that. Would you put someone like that who's just is not at the level where you should really worry, but it's up and your lifestyle seems to be okay, would you would someone like that go on statins? Um, I mean, there's a lot of crossover between people that are diabetic and people that take things for their cholesterol. Now, I mean, there's a school of thought that every one of us should be on statins just to keep our cholesterol under control. And, you know, in some European nations now, um, the statin drugs are actually over the counter. So people have started to take them on a routine basis, very low, low strengths. But, you know, what usually happens in Europe or or a foreign country will eventually come to Canada. And, and actually last year we had an old type statin actually approved for over-the-counter uh, use here in Canada, but it hasn't been commercialized at all. But it's the trend, right? I think we'll see that over time where a lot of the statin drugs are going to uh, be over-the-counter. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. I am here with our trusted contributor, Dean Miller, from the Ontario Pharmacists Association. We are talking about all things pharmaceutical. We're going right to the phones. We've got Hal in Kitchener. Hi, Hal. Yeah, hi. I I just heard before the commercials there that you uh, were talking about statins over the counter. Yes, Hal, yeah. Yeah, in, in Europe or somewhere? <clears throat> right. I surely hope that it wouldn't happen here because the drug companies would play it up so big that everybody would want to take statins. But in any case, what you're thinking or you're feeling with age-related uh, statin use? Like, I understood the new thinking now with the new research is that anybody over 70 should not be on statins, period. 
That's what I heard. Yeah, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of uh, question, uh, Hal, about sort of the use of statins. Because one of the one of the side effects that pops up with statins a lot is muscle weakness and and you know inability to kind of initiate. Now this is like in a in a serious uh, like in a most serious case, but especially like seniors who are more prone to fall, like as they get older. Yeah, yeah. Um, you well, know. I'm 80. Okay. And I run all over the place. I walk all over the place. I fly airplanes. I do all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And yeah. if the doctors had their way, I'd still be on statins. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, for the most part in most people, statins are are pretty safe. And I think that's... um, Well, except for the liver problems and the kidney and all that stuff. Yeah, but but I think the one that pops up the most is sort of the muscle weakness, and the reason that a lot of times with seniors, they just, you know, they they, like a, a lot of times when seniors go into some long-term care facilities okay, and things, they take them off statins. You're recommending statins then for older people. Yeah, I think, you know, especially now you're an exception. You're 80 and you're still very active, but a lot of 80-year-olds are, aren't that active, right? So, you know, those people that, you know, are, you know, in a home or whatever, a lot of times they do what's called deprescribing. They take them off medications okay. that, uh, well, that are really not needed. Well, in the Mayo so. Clinic and all that stuff, uh, no, they say no statins whatsoever, ever. Yeah. Yeah. When you're over seventy. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, too it's, much harm, too much uh, side effect. But anyway, thank you for your opinion. Okay. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Al. Thanks. Appreciate. Okay. Well, I, th- I think Al had his opinion, yes. so uh, yeah, there we sure. should. We I I will look that up. Uh, before the break or during the break, we were talking about allergies. Uh, I just came back from a cottage way up north and uh, boy that walk in the woods really uh, I was really congested during. It seems much worse. Well yeah I think what we're seeing this year is is because of the late spring because of all the rain and I mean great for the plants but not mm-hmm. so great for allergy sufferers and you know if you look uh, usually by about now uh, you know the early part of July you know, pollen levels have fallen to a point where a lot of people that that have um, are, that are allergy sufferers, you know, they usually can go off their medications because a lot of times from about that period from about April first to the end of May, first few couple of weeks of June, is when a, in a pharmacy you sell probably seventy five, eighty percent of your antihistamines in any given year because people you know only use them, you know. That that time because that's when their allergies are the worst. Now this year, uh, we're starting to see it quite different, where it's the season is has extended quite a bit. So here we are in the in the early part of July, and we still have um, you know problems with high levels of pollens and birch and ash trees and oak trees and stuff that you know are in that still are, are producing a lot of pollen. Okay, I'm going to give the numbers out again. Maybe people have questions about allergy meds. I certainly do. The number is 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And it's interesting, um, I took, I think, what did I take, an Arius? And I was quite surprised that it worked because it doesn't always work. Why would a medication like that works sometimes and not others? Does it depend what pollen well, I'm near? Well, yeah, not really the pollen, uh, Libby, but it, it's more, you know, antihistamines are sort of an interesting class of drugs because they're they're very individual in nature. So what might work for you may not work for me. And quite often the advice you might get from a pharmacist is, you know, use an antihistamine for right. a few months and then switch to something different. Oh, okay. So, so cause, 
so maybe that is that could it be that I hadn't taken one for a while? Well, it could be because yeah. uh, just the nature of sort of how antihistamines work leads one to believe that, you know, by going off it for a while and then introducing it back into your system uh, would be of more benefit. So a lot of people, like I said, they'll try it. And this is this is usually not a drug where where if you find something and it works, just stick with it, right? Like a lot of times it's best with antihistamines to kind of make a switch and, you know, uh, people will use two or three different kinds during the uh, during a summer period or or a period when they have a lot of uh, allergy issues. And of course, there's different kinds of antihistamines as well. I mean, uh, desloratadine, which is Arius, like you said. I mean, it's got a little bit more for uh, congestion than than others do, whereas others are good for better for skin conditions and and and, that, and itchy eyes and all those terrible symptoms you get when you uh, have allergies. So. Okay, well, another thing about this season is a lot of rain, a lot of ticks, a Lyme disease, and Tony in Toronto has a question about Lyme sure. disease. Hi, Tony. Hi, how are you? Fine, how are you? Good, thank you. I want to know about what you can do for Lyme disease. What is there like a spray or something that you can wear, or how, how do you avoid it? Yeah, so, I mean, it, it's a great topic, you know, uh, also around the, the whole topic of pets as well. So, um, you know, the, the, the school of thinking, of course, is avoidance. And, you know, the, uh, there's a couple of really good insect uh, repellents out there, some with, uh, some with DEET. There's actually been a couple of new developments in that area as well, where there's some really good repellents out there. And the same repellents that you use for mosquitoes uh, are effective uh, against the prevention of Do you want to name, too. name so, some? Um, well, they're the common. Uh, you, you usually have to look on the ingredients oh, because with they're, they're all the same. Uh, oh, I thought you said there thing. was something new. Well, there is a there is a few new ones out there, but uh, you know they're not really commercialized and that okay. sort of thing. Okay. So, so no, good old. What I, wanted, what I wanted to say was there was um, because apparently we have deer in in uh, Scarborough Bluffs, right? Yes. And I know that they come off the of deer. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's the origin of of, of ticks and and. Um, you know, anywhere where there's deer, you're usually going to find a lot of ticks, but that's not, that's not the only place, right? So, I mean, uh, ticks can move around and they are usually in, in, in high grass and that sort of thing. And I mean, to answer your question about the Lyme disease, I mean, uh, you know, uh, if you can get the tick off of you, uh, as quick as possible, uh, um, you know, you can, uh, you can prevent the transmission of the bacteria because Lyme disease... Is yes, exactly. Save the tick. What do they look like? I don't know what they look like. Um, well, they vary in size, but they're not very big. They probably, if you look at your little uh, little fingers, uh, the fingernail on your little finger is is about usually the size of a of a tick. And um, you know, most people you know find it on their on their pet uh, before they find it on them because uh, okay. their their pets usually in high grass and in bushes and that sort of thing. But I mean, it gets, it gets bigger because it, it lives off of a blood source. So it gets bigger oh. and it'll get engorged with blood uh, until eventually it, it just falls off. But it's uh it's a very, very serious condition. And Lyme disease is definitely something that you need to, if you find a tick and you suspect it's been on there for more than uh, a few hours, got to go to your doctor and get a oh prescription for uh there are there are a few antibiotics that are effective uh, not a hundred percent each and every time but uh, the quicker you can get that tick off of you and get some antibiotics into you the better 
Right, and there is um, there's there's a big controversy because I think when you suspect it but don't know for sure, some people want to give you one dose. Other people say you need to take antibiotics for three weeks uh, to prevent it. So um, yeah, yeah, it's a tough I mean, one. You know, if you get to the point where you actually see that traditional Lyme disease rash, which looks like a, a big circle. Uh, around a bite, uh, you know, that that's a definite sign to get into your physician ASAP uh, and get some uh, treatment for it. Okay. Thank you very much. You're very You're welcome. welcome. Have a great day. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Okay, let's go to Barbara in Stony Creek. Hi, Barbara. Hi. Hi, You're- Barbara. Hello. Hello. <laughs> You're on the air. Thank you. Um, I have a question about a medication for my dog. I have a 13-year-old boxer mix, and uh, she was prescribed tramadol mm-hmm. for um, some hip issues. Yes. She's had uh, some pulled muscles and lig- a, a torn ligament quite a few years ago. And uh, now I know at times I think she's in pain. So I was prescribed tramadol, but I knew that tramadol was also a medication prescribed for people. Right. And I wondered if it is the same drug, and can I get it through my pharmacy? So that's there's a good example of one you can get from your pharmacist uh, um, and, and probably at a little bit of a cheaper price. But it's also a good one to... Uh, as a bit of a warning that, you know, for, for your pet, you don't mm-hmm. necessarily want to go over the counter and just buy something like a leave or Advil or something and give it to your dog because both of those medications are are potentially dangerous for your dog, whereas right. something like Tramadol is not. Right. Well, that, that I, under, I understood that. I, I thought that it might even be safe to give her buffered aspirin, but then I was kind of worried about it. I wasn't sure. Well, aspirin is a little bit safer, but uh, I'd still stick with the tramadol. But the tramadol. But so the, so basically the, the drugs are the same if I get it from the vet or get it from a pharmacist. Yeah, that, that one falls under the classification of uh, one of those drugs that is uh, exactly the same. But they now, aren't all. Describe, I'm sorry. But they aren't all the same. Just remember that. Yeah. No, yeah. I know that. No, no, I realize that. Um, she was prescribed a 100 milligram dose, though, mm-hmm. yeah. um, twice a day. Um, is does that that sounds like a lot to me? But is that normal? Um, how, how well she you said it's a boxer. So how, how many pounds? Sorry, 64. Yeah, so it's a pretty big dog. I mean, dogs typically have a little higher met- metabolic rate than humans and okay. and whatnot. But uh, I mean, the dosing, the specific dosing, probably best referred to your uh, to your vet. Right. Um, pharmacists, you know, we can find that information out for you right. for sure. But yeah. it's not a typical, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, within our skill set to know yeah. uh, too much yeah. about animals. So. I understand. Okay. Thanks Thank for, you very much. Bye-bye. bye-bye. Okay, I think uh, we have time for a quick one. We've got Suzanne in Oakville. Hi, Suzanne. Hi, Libby. Uh, yes, I wanted to ask um, uh, Mr. Dean about um, Robitex for dogs. I have an elderly dog, and uh, he's a little bit larger than his size. And I know that um, he has hip problems. He has difficulty on the stairs and this and that. Now, a friend of mine... Okay, we, we, we're we running out of time, so can we let oh, him yes, answer Robitex. based on that? So was it... be able to take Robitex, which is meant for humans. Is that Roba- is it Robaxa set? A Robaxa set? Is uh, it a muscle relaxer? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I don't... I, 
I haven't heard of people giving muscle relaxants to dogs. Uh, um, I, I would best check with the vet on that one, I think. Um, there are a lot of pain relievers just on their own that are okay, but but that one, muscle relaxants and uh, dogs, I don't, that's out of my area of expertise, that one. So. Okay. Thanks so much for that, Dean. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.